Hello, welcome to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Thursday, February 15th, 2024. I'm your reader, Grace Barter. In local headlines, a drunken driver has been sentenced to prison for killing a bicyclist in 2019. L.A. Jefferson Jr., 46, who had attempted to take back pleas to homicide by vehicle, second offense, operating while intoxicated and leaving the scene, was unapologetic as he was sentenced to up to 14 years behind bars on Monday. Jefferson claimed the bicycle hit his car while he was driving to work, and he claimed the cyclist, 22-year-old DeLale Selkick of Waterloo, was on meth and died of strangulation. Facts are not supported here. Speed was not a factor. This was not a high-speed collision. In my profession, and I do call mixology a profession, I studied to bartend and to know the signs of his intoxication, Jefferson said. He also read from a long religious statement. District Court Judge Joel Dalrymple was equally unapologetic in handing down the sentence, which was agreed upon earlier as part of plea negotiations. Dalrymple said, I say often at the time of sentencing, the court takes no pleasure in sending somebody to prison. I can't say that in this case, Mr. Jefferson. You have taken the life of another individual. You have not accepted one ounce of responsibility in this. You left him for dead. You did so while you were under the influence. If I could impose more, I would, the judge said. Selkick's parents were in the courtroom listening to the proceedings through an interpreter, but they declined to address the court. In another article, a Waterloo man gets 45 years in prison for face shooting. A Waterloo man has been sentenced to more time in prison for almost killing someone than he was sentenced to for actually killing someone else. Judge David Odekirk on Monday sentenced Robert Lee Williams Jr., 35, to 45 years in prison for attempted murder willful injury and felon on possession of a firearm for shooting Tony Campbell in the face in an alley off West 6th Street in July 2020. The 45-year sentence was added to a 10-year prison stint Williams is currently serving for voluntary manslaughter for fatally shooting Vincent Hemingway in a garage in August 2020. In the alley shooting, prosecutors allege Williams suspected Campbell of poisoning his brother. Williams and Campbell had been drinking, and Williams then pulled out a handgun and shot Campbell in the face. Campbell fled, then circled back to the alley and fired off a few shots from his own gun. Williams later admitted to police he wanted to kill Campbell because of what happened to his brother. At trial, Williams claimed he acted in self-defense, saying he shot Campbell because Campbell was about to shoot him, but jurors found him guilty as charged. Before sentencing Monday, the defense unsuccessfully requested a new trial, claiming that Patrick Salas, a person who was present during the shooting but wasn't called to testify at trial, made a statement that backed Williams' account. The judge found the defense had the option to put Salas on the stand at trial and declined. 
Williams is currently serving 10 years in prison for Hemingway's death. Authorities allege Williams and his brother had planned to rob a drug stash house, but then turned their attention to an Adrian Street garage where Hemingway was working on motorcycles with friends. Williams pulled out a handgun, and Hemingway lunged for the weapon to protect his friends. Williams pulled the trigger, and Hemingway was shot and later died. Prosecutors charged Williams with murder, but a jury found him guilty of the lesser charge of voluntary manslaughter. Williams is also awaiting trial for an August 2020 gunfight on Argyle Street in which two people were injured. In more news, a man is cited in December Mercy One gun accident. One person has been cited in connection with a gun that fired inside a Waterloo hospital in December. Waterloo police cited Nikki Nikki, 24, on Monday for one count of first-degree trespassing. Mercy One Waterloo Medical Center was placed on lockdown after witnesses reported hearing a gunshot on the morning of December 29th. Staff found a bullet hole inside a restroom. Police and hospital workers used video surveillance to identify the suspect who left the building. Officers later found Nicky at his home on Franklin Street. Mercy One has signs at the entrances stating weapons, vaping, tobacco, and marijuana are prohibited in the hospital buildings. According to court records, Nicky told police he went to the hospital with his girlfriend and brought his pistol, a 9mm Taurus, in his sweatshirt pocket. He was in the hospital restroom and had finished washing his hands when he reached into his sweatshirt pocket for his vape. His pistol fell out of the pocket and fired, according to his account. Nicky then became scared and fled. The bullet caused 200 to $300 in damage. A man was arrested for guns, drugs, and following a standoff at an apartment. Waterloo police seized three guns and marijuana following a disturbance and standoff at an apartment complex late Tuesday. Neighbors at 3623 Ravenwood Circle called 911 around 10 p.m. after a man in the hallway began banging on doors. Officers arrived and found Jacob Lee Van Ripper, 38, holding a handgun. He refused to drop the weapon and retreated into his apartment, according to police. He turned off his lights, and police spent several hours attempting to talk to him with public address system. Members of the police department's tactical team were called in, and he eventually surrendered. Police found two handguns and a 22 caliber rifle in his apartment, according to court records. Officers also found several bags of marijuana. Van Riper was arrested for public intoxication, interference while armed, disorderly conduct, carrying weapons while intoxicated, possession of marijuana with intent to deliver, and violation of the Drug Tax Stamp Act. A Cedar Falls man allegedly stole from an internet company. A former internet service company employee has been arrested for allegedly stealing equipment from his employer. According to court records, 
Andrew J. Mosley, 31, told police he pawned the gear to get money for drugs. Authorities allege Mosley took more than $10,000 worth of items from NextLink Internet and phone, 1916 State Street, between January 2022 and December 2023. Company officials went to police in December. Officers used pawn shop records to find and recover some of the missing items. On Monday, police arrested Mosley of Cedar Falls for one count of first-degree theft. He was released pending trial. In county news, Blackhawk County plans a $6 million Pinecrest building rehab. The Pinecrest building's future is beginning to take shape after the county took its first steps for a remodeling project. The Blackhawk County Board of Supervisors approved a commitment to contract with InVision Architecture and Modest Engineering for professional services to remodel and relocate facilities on the Pinecrest campus on Tuesday. The vote was four to one, with Supervisor Tom Little voting against. He said it is fiscally irresponsible to not bid out projects due to possible conflict of interest. The contracts did not have to be bid on because the county is using American Rescue Plan Act funds. The services are estimated to cost between $400,000 and $500,000. The Pinecrest Building, 1407 Independence Avenue, houses the county's Public Health Department, Veteran Affairs Department, and the Department of Human Services. The $5.9 million project would relocate the Veterans Affairs Office and rearrange and renovate the Public Health Department. The Veteran Affairs Office on the first floor would be moved to what is currently an assisted living building owned by Exceptional Persons Incorporated behind Pinecrest on 1210 Idaho Street. EPI's contract ends this summer and it is moving elsewhere. Information on the new location was not available. That building would be remodeled to expand client care areas and create veteran-specific facilities. Once the Veterans Affairs Department vacates the Pinecrest building, the 3,600-square-foot area will be transformed into the Public Health Department's clinic. The clinic is currently on the fifth floor of the building. Public Health provides health services such as sexually transmitted infection screening and treatment, child health services, oral health screening, blood lead testing, immunizations, and tuberculosis screening. In an application to an ARPA advisory firm, Rory Geving, the superintendent of maintenance for the county, said the clinic has many outstanding needs to operate efficiently. These include reliable heating and cooling, adequate exam room sizes to include exam table and ADA-compliant restrooms and exam rooms, the current storage area for vaccines is also not large enough to hold all of the supplies. The new clinic on the first floor would be redesigned to minimize interactions between patients, install modern medical equipment, and upgrade technology for health care management.
the reception desk would be relocated there. The existing public health offices on the 4th and 5th floors will also be updated. This would include creating bigger spaces for staff, upgrading technology, and relocating conference rooms, break rooms, and other common areas. Pinecrest, which is more than 100 years old, has outdated infrastructure, Giving said. Electrical breakers trip, temperatures don't remain consistent, and the roof and windows leak. Other updates would include increasing building security and installing signage for patient navigation. The entire project is estimated to take 18 months. The county must award construction contracts by December 31st to be in line with ARPA requirements. The future of the current high school is discussed by the Cedar Falls School Board. Officials expect to be using the current Cedar Falls High School several months after students are welcomed at a new building in August. We do not know that the district will utilize the property through October-November of 2024, Superintendent Andy Patty told the Board of Education Monday concerning the property at 1015 Division Street. That could interfere with a proposal developer Brent Dahlstrom presented to the Board that would have Waterloo Christian School renting the property by the start of classes in the fall. Dahlstrom told the board in his presentation that he would like to buy the property from Cedar Falls Community Schools for an eventual single-family home development. In the meantime, though, he would lease the building to the private school, which wanted to hold classes there starting later this year. That would be an interim move for the school between its current location at Ainsboro and West Ridgeway Avenues in Waterloo to a 14-acre parcel in Cedar Falls Pinnacle Prairie area. However, Patty said Monday that the campus, which opened in 1954, has multiple issues that could be cause for concern with future usage, like uh, HVAC considerations, poor constructability foundation issues, and wall issues. Commenting on the situation Wednesday, Patty said there's been no follow-up conversation with Dahlstrom, but he wouldn't consider the issue dead. Janelle Darst, the district's coordinator of communications and community relations, said of Dahlstrom's proposal, what Brent proposed to the board could still be what the board accepts, but it would not be possible with the time frame they proposed. We are still trying to figure what will be moved over to the new building and go to auction. The district is building an $89.35 million high school on 69.6 .6 acres in the 2700 block of West 27th Street. The entire project, including a football stadium, has a budget of $112.8 million. Officials discussed plans to relocate the entrance of Island Park. City officials anticipate progress on a years-long effort to revitalize Island Park. Public Works Department staffers met with the North Cedar Neighborhood Association this week, updating them on the plan to relocate the northern entrance, one of two drives, further north 
to an enhanced area of the park across from Paget Technologies on Center Street. The new drive would replace the current one and give park goers easier access to newer recreational amenities like disc golf and bocce ball, as well as the restrooms and future horseshoe pits, all further from the flood-prone area and the boater traffic. The drive is pending Department of Natural Resources approval after having already experienced delays because of a survey needing to be completed for the project, according to Brian Heath, Operations and Maintenance Division Manager. But the hope is work can begin as soon as this spring and allow for eventually a new park monument sign to be installed near where that current drive is now. Also on the list is expansion or enhancement of the beach and the reinvigoration of a natural resource habitat designated area in between the two drives. Any chance of a larger project to directly address the flooding is unlikely at this point and not much discussion has been had at the council level on any such undertaking. Council members discussed the possibility in 2021, but were told there was no cost-effective long-term fix. Island Park plans have been worked on and developed with assistance from Snyder and Associates, at least since 2020, when increased flooding impacted the park and increased staff time for cleanup and repairs was identified as a problem. As enhancement of quality of life increasingly is seen as a local government issue, constituents can expect discussions on tired parks, as was seen in early goal planning this winter. Improvements are slated for Searley Park and possibly larger improvements to Birdsall Park. A few examples of what's in the works. In some state news, the state has capped the city's ability to tax growth in assessed valuation. Almost every city in the county saw an increase in taxable property valuations from 2022 to 2023. These increases range from 4.1% to 21.5%. Raymond is the only city with a decrease, albeit small, at 0.5%. Urban agricultural land has also decreased 5.2%. Unincorporated areas such as townships had a 1.2% increase. These numbers include tax increment finance districts. Property tax from these districts stay within those districts and do not go into the city's general fund. Most TIF districts expire after 20 years, except those deemed as having slum and blight. Those TIFs do not expire. Bridget Wood, Waterloo's finance director, said without the TIF taxes, the city saw about a 1.2% increase, whereas with TIF, it is a 8.7% increase. Cedar Falls saw an increase of 7.1%, but when TIFs are excluded, that increase is 4.4%. 
Both Waterloo and Cedar Falls valuation changes are on par with previous years. While TIFs have been implemented years, major changes in rollbacks dictated by the state are new. In November, the state rollback, or the percentage of a property's value that can be taxed, dropped from 54.65% to 46.34%. The significant change comes after last year when many Iowans saw massive increase on the assessed values of their homes. With the new formula, a property valued at 100000 would see it's from, it drop from 54 to $46,340. Cedar Falls Finance Department said the city will be greatly affected because it is 78% residential. The department said the city saw a 20% increase in assessed valuations, or $748 million. After rollbacks are applied and TIFs are taken out of the equation, the city will see a $162 million increase. Last year, rollbacks also were changed for commercial and industrial properties. These properties will receive the residential rollback amount, 46.34%, for the first $150,000 of value. Once $150,000 is exceeded, the rest will be taxed at 90%. The multi-residential property class was also eliminated. This includes properties like mobile home parks, assisted living facilities, or any property with three or more living quarters. These properties are now considered residential and taxed at the residential rate. Cities with larger growth will be affected even more. Due to property tax legislation HF718, any city in the state, regardless of non-TIF growth, can only capture up to 3% of that money. Cities that see non-TIF taxable growth of 3-6% to can only receive 2% of that increase. If a city sees over 6% of non-TIF taxable growth, they are capped at 3%. Cities that have non-TIF growth under 3% will not have a reduction. HF 718 will also set maximum levy rates and consolidate levies into a city's general fund. It also sets a new timeline for cities' budget procedures. All cities are required to hold a public hearing for proposed tax levies. The notice of that public hearing will be mailed to all residents from the county auditor. The bill gives local governments an additional 30 days to certify their budgets with a deadline of April 30th. The taxable value of all property in Black Hawk County rose 6.7% during the 2023 calendar year. The values will be used by local governments when they set property tax rates for fiscal year 2025. The figures below include value retained in tax increment. The Cedar Falls Superintendent Andy Patty covered a variety of legislative items at Monday's Board of Education meeting. He made mention of Senate Study Bill 3073, which would reform the area education agency system. This is a bill where we have some concerns as superintendents across the state, he said. 
Patty did support an increase in teacher pay included in the bill. This will invest $96 million to boost salaries. The bill, in its current form, did not make it out of the Iowa House subcommittee, but is still being discussed in the Senate. He also mentioned House Study Bill 585, which requires schools to start on the Monday of the week that includes August 23rd. If it is on a weekend, school must start on the next closest day. Patty remarked that the bill was very interesting and we do not know if this bill will pass. Finally, Patty mentioned House Study Bill 633, which would list on the ballot the party affiliation of school board candidates. These bills and other legislation must move forward in a committee by the end of today to start alive in the legislature. In other news, a man gets 60 years in a carjacking death of a former UNI football player. News coming out of St. Louis. A St. Louis man was sentenced Wednesday to 60 years in prison for a series of carjackings, including one in which a former University of Northern Iowa football player and high school coach was killed. U.S. District Judge Ronnie L. White handed down the sentence for 31-year-old Kurt Wallace, who pleaded guilty in September to four counts of carjacking, one count of discharging a firearm in furtherance of carjacking resulting in death, and other crimes. Federal prosecutors said Wallace shot three victims during three carjackings in 2017 that were set up through a dating app. One victim was shot in the shoulder on September 16th, Another was shot in the leg on October 15th. Both survived. Former UNI Panther Jazz Granderson was fatally shot October 16th, 2017, while his Jeep Grand Cherokee was being stolen. Granderson was an assistant football coach at DeSmet Jesuit High School in suburban St. Louis. He played at Northern Iowa from 2009 to 2011. Wallace was named in a federal indictment in November 2017. He was jailed awaiting trial when he escaped in July 2019, prosecutors said. He was captured after carjacking a vehicle and crashing during a police chase. Six others accused in connection with the carjackings were previously convicted and are, servicing, are serving sentences ranging from five years to life in prison. In more local news, since he became the owner of Godfather's Pizza in Cedar Falls in 2001, in some more local news, the Cedar Falls Godfather's Pizza is set to close. The owner plans to retire. The last day of operation is to be February 23rd. Michael, known as Mick Timmerman, says he hasn't had seven days off in a row since he became owner of Godfather's Pizza in Cedar Falls in 2001. The longest I've had is five days. I'm pretty hands-on, and that's why I only have the one restaurant, he said. Timmerman's experience handling pizza 
dates back to when he was 15 years old at Ott's Drive-In in Fayette, where he grew up, and later as a manager at Happy Joe's Pizza and Ice Cream in Olwine. All good things must come to an end, though. At the age of 62, Timmerman is retiring, which is noted on the Godfather's sign out in front of the restaurant at 1621 West 1st Street. The restaurant's heartbeat streaking across the back dining room wall in red and green paint and drawn by himself and his late brother Jay as part of the Godfather's franchise logo will cease at 10 p.m. February 23rd, his last day in operation. He's been working at the Cedar Falls Pizzeria since becoming a manager there in the winter of 1984. He transferred from one of the franchise's other locations, no longer in operation, off Shukai Road in Waterloo, across from Crossroads Mall, where he'd started six months earlier. The restaurant has been a Cedar Falls staple on First Street since about 1977, owned first by the Rigo Corporation and then Ken Kevin Stubby before Timmerman. He's agreed to sell the property and is unsure what's in store under the future owners. His decision to close will not impact the Godfathers in Waterloo at 3811 University Avenue. The Cedar Falls resident has seen his wife, Hope, and two sons, Jordan and Nathan, get involved over the years. He will miss the countless staff and customers who've walked through the doors and become a part of the history. A former worker and current customer, Dane Bruce of Waterloo, walked in Tuesday to pick up a vegetarian thin crust. Other favorites have been the taco and all-meat combo pizzas. There's not been too many changes to the operation and building over the years until the closure. The restaurant had seen an increase in credit and debit card usage and online ordering well before the COVID-19 pandemic, which wiped out the restaurant's buffet for good. If there wasn't online ordering, we wouldn't be doing the business we're doing, said Tiverman. And when not as many people were eating out during the pandemic, the numbers went up. And we actually did better during COVID with our carryouts, deliveries, and online ordering. The restaurant underwent a complete remodel in the early 1990s and has had different arcade games from Fischl's Music over the years. It staffs about 25 people. The tables and booths seat approximately 140 customers. The large dining room has attracted crowds over the years. Timmerman recalls when Holmes Junior High students would go to Godfather's after-school dances. They'd also see a bump in customers after concerts at the Unidome and wrestling tournaments. You are listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier, for Thursday, February 15th, 2024, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now, let's turn to today's obituaries. Jeffrey F. Taylor, 60, of Waterloo, passed away on February 10th, 2024, after a sudden cardiac arrest. Jeff was born in Monticello on September 30th, 1963. He grew up in Wyoming and was a 1982 graduate of Midland High School. He was a 1986 graduate of the University of Iowa School of Music. A gathering of family and friends celebrating his life will be held from 3 to 6 p.m. Monday, 
February 19th at Calkin Square in Wyoming, Iowa. A private family burial will be at Buckhorn Cemetery in rural Maquoketa, Iowa. The Carson Celebration of Life Center in Maquoketa is caring for the family. In lieu of flowers, his family requests memorial contributions be made to fine arts programs in your local schools, the Waterloo and Cedar Falls Community Theaters, Cedar Falls Municipal Band, or Pet Shelters. Sally Joanne Meyerhofer, age 75 of New Hampton, died Sunday, February 11th, at her home, surrounded by her family. Friends may greet the family from 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday, February 15th at the Huge Back Johnson Funeral Home and Crematory in New Hampton, where there will be a 7 p.m. parish scripture service. Graveside services will follow at 10 a.m. Friday at Calvary Cemetery in New Hampton. George Allison Westcott was born April 30, 1944, in Livermore, California. He was in the U.S. Navy during the Vietnam era. George married Betty Smith on February 15, 1964. She preceded him in death in 1983. He enjoyed hunting, fishing, and his friends at the neighborhood tavern. He married Marty. They later divorced. Then he married Lynn. They later divorced. George passed away on Thursday, February 8th, at his home at the age of 79. A private burial will be held at the Garden of Memories. There will be a celebration of life on Saturday, February 17th, from 11 until 2 p.m. at the Park Road Inn, 306 Park Road, Waterloo. Ruth Marie Trushine was born on April 8th, 1929 at the family home in Custer Park, Illinois. She passed away February 9th in Grimes. She graduated from Wilmington High School in 1947 and attended Illinois State University in Normal, Illinois, graduating with a Bachelor of Science degree in Elementary Education. Upon her graduation, she began teaching in Bloomington, Illinois, where she taught for four years. On July 9, 1955, she married Rudolf Trusheim in Symerton, Illinois. They made their home in Naperville, Illinois, where she taught until they moved to Iowa. The couple lived in Russell, Radcliffe, Dumont, Des Moines, Fort Dodge, and Waterloo, as Rudolph served different United Methodist churches. In each location, Ruth became involved in the school system as a substitute or full-time teacher. She loved teaching and loved the children as if they were her own. She completed her teaching career in Waterloo and retired to Urbandale. Ruth lived the final years of her life at Kennybrook Village in Grimes. Ruth had many interests in life outside of teaching. She loved being a pastor's wife and especially enjoyed helping her husband with weddings. In retirement, she hosted the annual Urbandale Neighborhood Advent and Christmas brunch for many years. She loved to garden and enjoyed cooking for Trusheim holiday dinners. She was a tremendous baker, as anyone lucky enough to be on the receiving end of her caramel rolls, tea rings, or pies will attest to. Ruth was a member of Staves Memorial United Methodist Church, United Methodist Women, 
La Sertoma and Kappa Delta Epsilon National Sorority in Education. A celebration of Ruth's life will be 11 a.m. February 17th at the Staves United Memorial Church, 2747 East Madison Avenue, Des Moines, Iowa. Visitation will be 10 a.m. until the service time at the church. Memorial contributions may be made to Staves Memorial United Methodist Church in loving memory of Ruth. Judy Dawson, 75, of Waterloo, passed away on Monday, January 29th, surrounded by her family at Cedar Valley Hospice Home. Judy was born on January 19, 1948. She graduated from Orange High School in 1966. She worked for Black Hawk Rental as a bookkeeper. Judy was a housing parent for the Waterloo Blackhawks and Waterloo Bucks. She loved to crochet, quilt, and being with her families and friends. A more memorial service will be held on Saturday, February 17th at 11 a.m. at Lock at Tower Park, 4140 Kimball Avenue. Private burial was held at Garden of Memories Cemetery in Waterloo. Memorial contributions can be directed to the family. Patrick Seyfried, formerly of Waterloo, passed away on January 30th in Plano, Texas at the age of 87. He graduated from Sacred Heart in 1955. He served in the U.S. Army where he got his start in photography. After the military, he moved to Dallas and was a professional photographer for 50 years. A Mass of Christian Burial will be Saturday, February 17th at Sacred Heart Church at 10.30 a.m. Memorials may be directed to the family or Sacred Heart Church in Waterloo. Kathy Moore, 73, of Waterloo, died Sunday, February 11th at New Aldea Lifescapes in Cedar Falls after a courageous battle with Alzheimer's disease. She was born August 11th, 1950 in Waterloo. She graduated from Columbus High School in 1968. Kathy married Raymond H. Moore March 27, 22nd, 1969 at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Waterloo. She was a member of Blessed Sacrament Catholic Church. She worked in the Learning Center at Blessed Sacrament School and as a dietitian at Ridgeway Place Retirement Center for several years. Memorial Mass is at 1 o'clock p.m. Friday, February 16th at Blessed Sacrament Catholic Church with burial at Mount Olivet Cemetery, both in Waterloo. Visitation from 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday, February 15th at Lock on 4th, 1519 West 4th Street with a 4 p.m. rosary service. Memorials may be directed to Battle for Betsy. Carl Hanga, 94, of Allison, passed away Saturday, February 10th at the Waverly Health Center. He was born May 19, 1929, north of Parkersburg. He moved to Allison at an early age and graduated from Allison High School in 1947. Carl married Joyce Harms on September 12, 1948 in Allison. He worked for the Butler County Rural Electric Cooperative for 
52 years as a lineman, foreman, superintendent, and ended his career as operations manager. He served a term as president of the Iowa Association of Line Superintendents. He taught Red Cross first aid and safety for 45 years to hundreds of Butler County residents and taught civil defense during the 1960s missile crisis. He helped form the ambulance Allison Ambulance Service and was the chairman of the Butler County Fair First Aid Booth for 32 years. Carl's love of sports included 21 years as an announcer and timer for the Allison Bristow Community School District where he also served as president of the Athletic Booster Club. He helped form the Allison Bowling League and served as president for many years. Baseball was his greatest passion, and his pitching success led to him being offered a professional contract right out of high school with the White Sox organization. He played for several amateur and semi-pro teams, but it was his time spent with the Allison Cats that was most important to him. He helped the Cats win the Iowa State Amateur Baseball championship in 1950, 1951, and 1953, and participated in the National Baseball Congress Tournament in South Dakota. His commitment showed as he spent over 50 years as either a player, director, or manager with the Allison Cats. He was elected to Allison Bristow Athletic Hall of Fame, the Butler County Hall of Fame, and the Sports Hall of Fame. In later years, Carl transferred that same passion to golf, winning the 1988 Clarksville Club Championship, as well as multiple tournaments around the area. He could be found on most days in good weather and bad on the course. He was a charter member of the Allison Trinity Reformed Church. Visitation will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. Thursday, February 15th at Woodley Funeral Home in Allison. Funeral services will be held at 10.30 a.m. Friday, February 16th at Trinity Reformed Church in Allison. Carl will be laid to rest at the Allison Cemetery. Woodley Funeral Home of Allison is caring for Carl and his family. Memorials may be directed to the family. And in sports news, Union of LaPorte's Braden Bonchak and Jace Heideman know what it feels like to bring home hardware from the state wrestling championships. Now, the two defending state champions, Bonsack at 106 and Heidelman at 113, want their night teammates to have that feeling too. Wednesday, Union began that quest as it got pins from both Bonsack and Heidelman and major decisions from Coy Maylert and Caleb Olson to get itself off to a strong start during the opening day of the Class 2A Iowa State High School Wrestling Tournament at Wells Fargo Arena. Bonsack needed just 45 seconds to dispose of his first opponent, Jaden Mara. His win came moments after Mallard had scored an 11-0 major over Bryce Ostenink of Sioux Center at 106. Hedeman needed just 40 seconds to pin Titan Frolick of Harlan at 126, and after a slow start, Olsen topped Niall Sin of Williamsburg. Sophomore Caden Jones went 1-1 one -one at 120 and will wrestle Thursday. Union is in sixth after the opening session.
but are just three points out of second. Defending 2A state champion Osage had a good, not great, opening round. The Green Devils saw all five of their top-seeded wrestlers win, including pins from Blake Fox at 138, Tucker Stangle at 157, and Mac Muller at 285, while Anders Kittleson scored a 22-7 technical fall over Brady Patterson of Benton Community at 144. Fox pinned Kale Cook of Burlington, Notre Dame, in 3 minutes and 27 seconds. Stangle needed just 1 minute and 25 seconds to pin Blake Mather of West Delaware, and Muller flattened Roland Story's Aaron Payton in 1.48. Osage also got a first-round win from Max Gast at 1.65 over Clear Lake's Christian Dunning. The Green Devils stood in third place with 27.5 points behind Burlington, Notre Dame, and Mount Vernon. Charles City's Carter Catamol advanced to the 132 quarterfiles with a technical fall in his preliminary match and then a pin over Colton Keller of Sedell. Comet teammate Talon Weber won twice at 150. Weber scored a 11-3 major decision over Tristan Sinard of Knoxville in his first match and then pinned 7th-seeded Cooper Ludwig of Carroll. Independents had a pair of, win- of first-round winners. Caden Kramer opened with a 12-2 major decision over Kyler Sandholm of Red Oak at 138, while second-seeded Tyler Wyland edged Davenport Assumptions Peyton Pilgrim 3-0 at 144. Dyke New Hartford's Zach Edelman cruised in his 190 opener, a 10-5 decision over Bryden Rydell of Williamsburg. Top-seeded Braden McShane of New Hampton Turkey Valley had to battle in his first match at 215, but he earned a 3-0 win over Reese Raggy of North Polk to advance. Hampton Dumont, Cal's Carter Helscove, and Applington Parkersburg Grundy Center's Trent Cacris each scored wins at 285. In the high school boys' bowling, West wins a qualifier and a pair of Tigers and a Trojan punch tickets. In Marshalltown, Waterloo West earned a 3A state tournament bid by topping the field in a state qualifying meet. The Wahawks rolled a team score of 3,069. Marshalltown finished second with a score of 3,003. Waterloo West, Tavon Homelar, Rush Steen, and Drew Britson rolled top eight individual scores, with Homelar finishing as the individual runner-up. West's Nicholas Tharp finished in 10th. Aiden Berry and Ben Gear also represented the Wahawks. At Maple Lanes, Cedar Falls fell just shy of earning a team qualification, scoring a combined 2,882 to finish in third. Davenport Central and Johnston finished in first and second. Cedar Falls' Chris Fordyce rolled a 7-11 to finish as the state qualifying meet runner-up. Owen Brinker also earned a berth to the Class 3A state tournament, finishing in fourth. In Decorah, the Vikings earned a state qualifying meet championship with a score of 3,294 points. Brock Christensen led the way for Decorah, finishing as the meet runner-up. Jordan Sims and Cade Aberhoff also turned in top eight scores for Decorah.
Independence's Tegan Cross qualified with score of 667 and Waterloo East Tyler Peterson bowled a 615 to punch a ticket to the 2A state meet. In New Hampton, Sumner Fredericksburg's Carlos Sanchez scored a 684 to finish as the state qualifying meet runner-up. New Hampton's Jameson Porath, Charlie Kreiner, and Gabe Macon all earned Class 1A state tournament berths with top eight finishes. Grundy Center's Britt Meyer also earned a 1A berth with a score of 682 at the Ballard State qualifying meet. Charles City's Noah White rolled a 604 at the state qualifying meet hosted by Hartley Melvin Sanborn to earn a 1A berth. The state meet will be held February 19th through 21st at Cadillac Lanes in Waterloo. On Monday, February 19th, the 2A individual and 3A team events will be held, with 3A individual, 1A team on Tuesday, and 1A individual and 2A team on Wednesday. In the high school girls bowling, Marshalltown, in Marshalltown, Waterloo West earned a 3A state tournament bid by finishing second to Ottumwa in the regional meet. The Wahawks rolled a team score of 2,456. Ottumwa ran away with the meet with a score of 2,946. Waterloo West's Ainsley McConney was the regional champion as she rolled games of 213 and 214 on her way to a 610 series. She edged Lynn Mars Elevers by two pins for the state title, or for the title. McConaughey was last year's state runner-up in the individual tournament. At Maple Lanes, Cedar Falls posted the second highest score to qualify for the meet. The Tigers rolled a score of 2,617 to finish second behind Dubuque Sr. The Rams rolled a score of 2,760. The Tigers were led by Maggie Goodwin and Jenna Waltz. Goodwin rolled a series of 555 with a high game of 199, while Waltz had a high game of 201 with a series of 535. Goodwin and Walsh also finished in the top eight individuals and each advanced to the individual state tournament. In Class 2A, Dubuque Cap or Decora captured a regional title with a score of 2,675. The Vikings were led by regional champion Carly Ank, who recorded a series of 616. In Class 1A, Denver's Olivia Bolger qualified for the individual championships at a regional in New Hampton. Bolger finished third overall with a score of 548. The girls' state meet will be held February 19th to 21st at Cadillac Lanes in Waterloo. On Monday, February 19th, the 2A individual and 3A team events will be held with 3A individual, 1A team on Tuesday, and 1A individual and 2A team on Wednesday. And finally, artists soon will begin decorating 26 versions of the cat known as TC, the University of Northern Iowa's mascot. TC was cloned, cloned 
in fiberglass more than two dozen times by Icon Poly in Gibbon, Nebraska, and delivered to the Cedar Falls Tourism and Visitors Bureau. The pure white statues, ghosts of their future selves, were grouped at the Bureau's front door along Hudson Road on Tuesday, right before the sun went down. Right now, the six-foot, 65- to 70-pound panthers wear t-shirts and shorts with hands on their hips. The completed statues will eventually look a lot different and be placed all over Cedar Falls, along with two in Waterloo, between May 1st and 3rd, as part of the inaugural Panthers on Parade, remaining in place through UNI's homecoming October 25th to 26th. Twenty artists and their helpers retrieved the black canvases in large vehicles and pickup trucks on Tuesday, sometimes returning to get additional statues. In their studios, artists will embellish the statues to their liking. One additional TC statue is already out there. It was initially placed at the UNI bookstore and now stands at the University Admissions Welcome Center. The impetus for Panthers on Parade was the Overalls All Over campaign in Cedar Rapid, featuring the farmer and daughter from Grant Wood's famous American Gothic painting. Additionally, the state's two other university cities, Iowa City and Ames, have seen different statue campaigns for the University of Iowa's Herky the Hawk and Iowa State University's Cy the Cardinal, respectively. Once embellished, the statues will receive a clear coat to ensure they stand up weather. Another step will be adding a heavy base to the unique creations before moving them to different spots around town and organizing various promotional activities around them. And that does it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Thursday, February 15th, 2024. I'm your reader, Grace Barter. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. Thanks for listening, and have a great day.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Shortly after modern humans arrived in Europe, the Neanderthals disappeared, and scientists think we had something to do with it. Neanderthals, or their direct ancestors, migrated out of Africa and into the Middle East and Europe around 250,000 years ago. Soon, they were well adapted to the environment. Large eyes helped them see in the longer nights and darker winters. Stout bodies helped them retain heat and handle large prey, and provided space for the large liver and kidneys needed for a diet heavy in protein. Their brains were as big as ours, but spent processing power on their greater visual and motor abilities. This may not have allowed them to develop higher communication or conceptual thinking to match ours, which may have been their downfall. Modern humans arrived on the scene 45,000 years ago, less physically adapted, but more mentally adaptable. We had cooperative hunting methods superior to the Neanderthals, allowing us to outcompete them for food, and perhaps reducing the large herbivore populations that they depended on. We also had superior tools and weapons. When there were conflicts between the groups, as there have been among tribes throughout history, our superior technology probably allowed us to prevail. But we weren't only fighting. There must have been considerable interbreeding since we can find 1-3% to of the Neanderthal genome in modern man. Which means the Neanderthals never completely disappeared. A little bit of them is alive in us today. I'm Scott Tinker. EarthDate is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.